hard, driving on, keeping the ball alive. Doggy Vier is almost like a back row forward. And great stuff there by Doddy Weir, who, uh, when he goes like that, he's like a mad giraffe, but he's got great skills. Welcome to episode three of our Doddcast, supported by our friends at Aberdeen Standard Investments, with help from Rugby Pass, and produced by the wonderful Tim Groves. Yeah, the font of all the... Why do I say that every time? I don't know. <laughs> Uh, in the room today, we have the wonderful Doddy Weir. Welcome, Doddy. Thank you very much, Joel. Still here, still diving, still enjoying life. Good to see you. We also have Professor Martin Turner, who you'll remember from episode two, and also Sean McGrath, who is our medical strategy lead at the foundation. Just quickly recap, Martin and Sean, your background for those that missed episode two, shame on them. My name is Sean McGrath and I'm the medical strategy lead, as Joel just said, uh, for the My Name's Doddy Foundation. My background is in pharmaceuticals and then in medical communications and now I'm a management consultant. And uh, I met Doddy uh, some years ago and um, just as the foundation was being born, if you like, and I helped the foundation uh, recommend the investment in research, uh, and I work with Professor Martin Turner and his colleagues to decide where that research should be based. Essentially, that's what I do. I'm Martin Turner. I'm a professor of clinical neurology and neuroscience at Oxford University, uh, and I've been working on uh, MND uh, research for the last 20 years. It's a bit like University Challenge, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) And I'm Jill Douglas, and I'll be reading my notes. So in our first episode, we kind of talked generally uh, about uh, Doddy and the foundation and Doddy's experiences over the last three years since his diagnosis with MND. Our last episode was looking more specifically at living with motor neuron disease and the background to the disease. And then today we thought we would talk more about the foundation and how we invest in research, but also about the research community and what's actually happening at the moment, not just in the UK, but globally, to find some cure for motor neuron disease, because ultimately that has been the driving force behind the foundation. And it's certainly something that Doddy has been passionate about since his diagnosis. Um, and Doddy, that was really one of the, the sort of, if you like, foundation blocks of where we are today. It was this determination from you to actually find something born from that frustration at your diagnosis. Very much, Joel. We've, we've discussed with you and I this quite a lot, that if you've got a problem, it's trying to find a solution. And I found once I've been diagnosed, there, there are no solutions on the table. Really, these all came out, I think, maybe some 30 years ago, and it extends your life maybe by three months, so it doesn't do an awful lot for you, although it's available. Otherwise, there's nothing there on the table. So my drive, along with the trustees and the foundation, is to try and find a cure or stoppage or reverse of this horrific disease. And uh, we're getting there. We're spending quite a lot of money for the most amazing support, the most amazing team, the most amazing forums. So I think we're beginning to make a little difference, which is uh, quite exciting. And I think 2020 is going to be a great year for the start of trying to find this cure. So let's go back to the, if you like, the, the beginning, as far as we're concerned. And, and that was Doddy's diagnosis uh, in December 2016, which we had a few months to maybe process that before you shared that diagnosis with everybody else. And at that time, there was an immediate outpouring of support. It was quite incredible, not just from the rugby community, but it was bigger than that. And people felt like they wanted to help. And at that time, we didn't have a charity, we didn't have the foundation, but we were very conscious, I think, at that stage, Doddy, that there was a, a real opportunity to do something special. And, and But also it came with a bit of responsibility as well. 
Well, I think, Jill, as we, we look back upon it, that's what friends and family, especially the rugby family, uh, have been all so supportive. It's been unbelievable. Uh, and with that, yourself, uh, Finley called and decided to put a wee team together. But it's not so we, we with with uh, JJ, with Gary, John Jeffrey, Gary Armstrong, Stuart Weir, Scott Hastings, uh, my good lady and yourself. And, and with that, I know I speak to them just now, they're a bit disappointed. They thought it might be a six-month gig. <laughs> I'm still here after three years. I could, oh my word, I didn't think it would be as long as this. But joking aside, putting something together, we thought we could make a little difference. But the way the foundation has gone, it's just been truly remarkable. So well done to you because you're the boss. I think we all know who the boss is, Doddy, and it's certainly not me. Uh, and so there was a fundraising dinner right at the beginning, and that was very much to help you and Kathy and the boys and some of the, the problems and hurdles that you're going to face living with MND. But that evolved into the foundation because you decided that you didn't want to fundraise for yourself or your family. No, it had to be for a charity and the charity was going to invest in research and it was going to help people who were less fortunate than, than yourself. And that's where the foundation came in. Launched in November 2017, famously at the um, Scotland-New Zealand game where you carried the, the, the match ball onto the pitch. And and then it, it just snowballed and became this uh, incredible vehicle for fundraising but also to start shining a light on this most awful disease and Sean I think that's where where you came in you'd been very supportive of Doddy had been present at the dinner we had in London but also had been very supportive of him from the beginning and very quickly we realized although we're great friends of Doddy and we could help fundraise and we could offer guidance and we brought different skill sets what we couldn't do was determine what we were going to do with this what we now had as a large war chest of money and we wanted to share that and make sure we were putting it in the right direction. But most importantly, I think, we wanted to be self-determining about where that money went. We didn't want to just give it to another mainstream charity. We felt, and Doddy felt particularly, that we would decide where that money went, which presented us with quite a difficult question. <laughs> sure. Now, I can remember when we first had the conversation, Doddy, and it was around you wanted to build a foundation. And I I thought automatically uh, you would just do a, a, a charity and it would help patients. But when you said straight away, I want to fund research, we, when we need we need to go for it, we need to try and find a cure. That's when it really got exciting for me. And um, and I can remember you coming and saying, well, we've, this money's coming in and we're doing a great job raising, but how do we... How do we find out the best research to to fund? And I said, I have no idea, but I know how to find out. And my background is uh, I've worked in cancer for 25 years, and I know how to how to get the community together. And that's what I did. And so I um, I did some first of all some background research and contact number of people, including Martin, and um, we we held our first advisory group. Um, I think it was in the March of the following year, and we held it at the Caledonian Club in London. And uh, we got the group together and, and we said, this is what we want to do. And the group helped us understand the disease and understand the research, which we'll get onto. And we've been meeting ever since and doing, doing a lot of good stuff. And Martin, when you first received the call from Sean, you, you and, and your colleagues, who all work independently. Some obviously work together on different projects, but you come from different parts of the country with different experience. Found yourselves in the Caledonian Club with Doddy, myself and, and Sean. What, what was your thoughts? What did you think we were... Why did you come, frankly? <laughs> I thought it was fabulously exciting and actually the opportunity to, to get together with other people who have, have given their sort of career over to researching MND is quite rare, those opportunities. We go to a conference every year, but it's really busy and you're supporting your team and they're presenting data. 
to sit in the room with the people who organise research projects and actually to hear what they think about the condition and sometimes at a really basic level how they communicate it and be able to debate that is really exciting and, and is really, really important because it's not so much that we duplicate what we do but you do need checks and balances and you do need the peers to say, actually, I think that's a great idea. We can help. Or actually, I don't think that's such a good idea. So I was very excited about the chance to to meet up with uh, all of those people across the UK. I guess to see to see you and to see a patient um, and a patient who was going to be a little bit challenging in our faces, really, and rattling cages and saying, what? you know, what are you doing? And And I want to try this and I want to do this. That's uncomfortable for some people, and it's not always easy, but I think we need to be challenged like that. And so, uh, yeah, it's very exciting and uh, really pleased to be part of it. I remember that, that when, 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 you, when you turned around and said, what are you doing? Why haven't you got these drugs? And I remember the, the, the feeling in the room. And <laughs> I think the big thing then was frustration that my first six months of having MND was quite a... Uh, disappointing lesson on journey would have been without getting very much help from the people I expected to get help and thought why is there nothing been done for 30 years but since we've been together maybe less challenging but it's still in a way love to challenge if need be because I know I think somebody said oh it might be uh, five years before we find a cure so I was straight in his eyes five four three two one <laughs> Why can't you make it one year? What do you need to make it one year? And I think many of us did go away from that meeting and reflect on what would someone say about their first meeting with us when we diagnosed them. And, you know, we can always do better. And we, you know, I certainly thought, what are the resources I offer people and the conversations I offer them? So hearing about that is uncomfortable, but it's important. We, we all, you know, have to say, are we offering people... Uh, the best service and, and the best explanation when we do give them the diagnosis. Can I also just make the point that the people that that we contacted, all of our advisors were, and I cross-referenced them with each other, if you like, are really the top clinical researchers in the country, for sure. They absolutely are. And not only did they come the first time and everyone said yes, they also came back the second time. So so the feeling of uncomfortableness actually was, was I think, was, was a, a good thing. And as you said, maybe cause you guys to reflect. And, and also what's happened is we've actually added to it because we've had a couple of individuals come to us and say, why were we not invited along? Can we come too? Exactly. So that has been hugely satisfying. And I think the, the more uncomfortable we can make you feel brilliant. You know, I think that was very much our <laughs> feeling at the at, at, in that first meeting. But I think, Jill, as well, from a patient point of view, it's explained the complexity of the issue, what's going on for the last 30 years, because a lot of patients out there will be thinking... What have you guys been up to? But actually, the slides and information that you shared with us, Martin, and your colleagues, was was very important for my development and my understanding. So it certainly helped me to discuss where we are at the moment. And I think the the thing that shone through for me particularly was I left that initial meeting really encouraged by the amazing people that are working so hard and have been working so hard and have got re- have been making progress. And I think maybe there's a responsibility to share that that progress, to pe- let people know that there is so much going on. And there are different resources out there and you can read about different research projects. And I think our website itself does go into some detail about our scientific advisory panel and the people that we talk to regularly. So I think there is reason to be quietly encouraged. I wasn't that encouraged after 
the first meeting because we opened the doors to everyone at the meeting to apply for grant money for ourselves. Yeah, right. And only, I think, one university or one professor came back. And that kind of deflated me a little bit, thinking, why don't, if it takes five million to find a cure, Martin, why didn't you apply for that? And then we, we'd have gone out and tried to fund that. But for one out of maybe 10 to come back with a grant application was quite deflating, I'm sorry to say. No, I'm really pleased that you, <laughs> you've said that because we, we all wondered who was going to apply and we were actually quite surprised. I think it was a bit like sort of Chinese whispers. Um, we didn't know if everyone was going to apply or no one was going to apply. It does reflect a little bit. There's a slightly um, broken sort of grant system, really, generally in science. Um, it's not just the UK, but generally, whereby often you're applying for money, um, thinking ahead to the next project, but perhaps applying on the basis of work that's halfway through already, because there's this desire not to fund things that are risky, um, uh, that you've got a clear outcome, and it gets away from the ability to fund the things that actually I think might be worth taking a risk on. And uh, I think the ability of your foundation, what you made clear later, was that actually you did want to hear our ideas, you didn't want the same old. That was what opened the gate for us to, to, to put more applications in. And I think what, what happened was we said, well, how can we help? Now, you'd never met us before. It was our first meeting. We sat in a room. We asked some tricky questions. I think you probably had to do a little bit of due diligence as well to make sure that we could come up with what we said we could come up with. However, once, I must say, once the, <laughs> once the first application came in and we told everybody we were going to help fund, I think it was Professor Chris Shaw mm. uh, approached us for some help, then everybody recognised that there was an opportunity and, and we've then received many applications. And we were learning as well. And 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 one of the things that, that struck us, I think, um, was was the fact that, that, that sometimes it was just, you ha- you have the ideas, in fact, you have the research ongoing, you don't have the headcount to, to finish these trials or, or get them done properly. And that was a bit of an eye-opener for us because we can be flexible as a, as a foundation and we managed to plug some of those gaps with some headcount yeah. resource and that, that makes a big difference, obviously. One of the things that people don't realise is, is how precarious it is for particularly um, what we call non-clinical postdoctoral scientists who've chosen to, to dedicate their career in, in to, to science, but they don't have a, a, the medical background to come from. They're often in quite short-term contracts and positions. And actually, they can get started on something, make real progress, and then it's a real struggle to get funding to keep them on. Uh, and so actually, yes, recognising that sometimes that's the block is just to have that little bit of extra flexibility it gets them into the next stage. Then they can put a grant in and develop more money. Um, so thinking about the people and not just the research. And that, that's been a really refreshing part of the foundation. And for yourself as well, as a patient, you get- Get quite annoyed and frustrated about the length of time, but once you guys explained normal grant application takes about a year from start to finish, mm. you 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 can understand why there's a certain delay. What it would take three months to write the paper, three months to reply, three months to act, and then three months to start. There's a year from sort of you can understand why there's a frustration with you and also with the patients, which again the forum for myself has been a great education. And we now meet regularly. The last few meetings have been at the beautiful Boughton House, which is the home of um, the Duke of Buccleuch, who's been a tremendous support supporter of ours. Fantastic. Yeah. I mean, he just has been amazing. And it's in the centre of the country. It's in Northamptonshire. And it's easy for people to come. Mm. 
And it is a beautiful place, which I think does help attract. It's got a lovely whiskey collection, <laughs> but <laughs> also, but also practically, it saves us money trying to find a venue. Exactly and, right, so and, and it's it's a great way of, yeah. of him to support us, and we, he's a great supporter of MNDA as well. He's a he's a fantastic individual. Martin, one of the questions I think is important to ask is why is it so difficult to learn more about motor neuron disease? We talked in the last episode about what it is, but why is it so difficult to effectively find? a cure. What are the challenges there? There's two things. I think there's the understanding the basic biology and also then how you measure improvement. And so the biology of these diseases is highly complex. They're disorders generally of later life. And so it's not something that we think has come in necessarily from the outside, like an infection uh, or a toxin. We think it's actually loss of control of normal processes in the body. So it's happening probably at a very, very a minor level within cells for certainly several years before you start to see some t- symptoms and probably maybe even longer than that. Now that's good because we may only need to nudge things back a little bit to help the body get back control but that level of change is is not something there's not a sort of single smoking gun that we can find uh, and we're realizing that uh, we can't simply just reboot the entire nervous system. So they're complex diseases they're very subtle and understanding those is still a little way off in in detail. The big issue we have, because we've got probably now the biggest logjam is we have 50 or so drugs that have some benefit in so-called phase two or from repurposing, and they've been tried against models in a laboratory, perhaps some cells in a dish you've tried the drug on, and it's a drug that's already used for something else. And so it's safe because we use it for this other condition. We know its side effects. And so why not just get started? And so we, we could just do that thought experiment. Let's say we give it to you now, Dolly. And so tomorrow I say to you, you know, how are you feeling? And you say, well, uh, it's, it's only the day after, you know, I'm not much different. And so we might ask you in a month, how are you feeling? And you'll have a view. You might say, well, you know, I, I'm not really noticing any change. Or actually, you know, I, I think something's happening here. And importantly, you might tell us, actually, I'm, I'm feeling quite a lot worse. Now, what I don't have is what, what is the natural history of you without this new trial, a sort of clone of you to see what would be going on to compare. And so at some point, you're going to have to make a decision, do I try something else now or do I add something in? And how many things do I keep adding in? Or do I switch to something else? What decision do you make that on? And the problem is I have no way of measuring your disease activity. And we call those sort of measurements biomarkers. In cancer, we can measure how much uh, the tumour is in size or where it is. We can do a scan. We can measure something in the blood that reflects the cell count if it's a leukemia for example but in motor neuron disease we don't have a simple way other than measuring your strength which i think you'll probably agree changes a little bit day to day depending Mm -hmm. on how you're feeling so it's not very accurate and if we simply say well let's go to a really brutal end point and say right we'll we'll run this drug in a group of people who get the drug and a a group of people who get the placebo the dummy pill and we'll do it for 18 months and we'll see what proportion of people are alive after 18 months. That's how we used to do a trial. And that takes a huge amount of time. It's a very blunt instrument. It means all those people who were on placebo missed out. And when we do those sorts of studies, most of the time the drugs haven't shown a difference. So we've got to do better than that. And what we're trying to do is develop something like a blood test or a scan that you could have that says to me, your disease is running at this speed. We're trying this drug now. Three months later, we measure it again it's now running at a slower speed. And so you say, right, I'll carry on. And that sort of thing, that kind of biomarker approach, I think we're on the cusp of introducing. 
and that'll make this probably a very big difference. this year. Yeah, so I think this year we're, we're going to be introducing a a blood test. It's not perfect. It's taken a while to come to to sort of maturity, but measuring really a, the, the rate of breakdown of nerves in the body um, uh, is something called neurofilament. It's not specific to MND. It reflects any process where there's a loss of, of nerves, but it's very, very good in a group level in motor neuron disease. And what I'm interested in is could it be used at an individual patient level to get a sense of what your disease rate is, a blood test that you have every three months, particularly then you can try things that you're, you're interested in trying um, and you can start to do your what we call N of one trial. And we can advise you if we think it might be making things worse. We can advise you if we think it might be helping. So I can't guarantee it'll, it'll come off, but to even be trying that, I think, is a, is a big step change. Most definitely. And I think that that is one of the frustrations that you found, Doddy, the lack of opportunity to contribute to knowledge on MND. So, you know, I think when you're diagnosed with cancer, and Sean, you can talk to this because, of course, you're experienced in, in cancer research, but you're given the most awful diagnosis of having some form of cancer immediately you are given an opportunity to be part of a trial. Sure, and, most often. And quite often it may benefit you. If it doesn't benefit you, you feel as though you have benefited the greater good because you've been part of something. And I think from your point of view, Doddy, one, there was nothing that you could try that might help you. But two, there was nothing that you could try that might help other people behind you. Yeah, definitely. That has been frustration from day one. That with MND, there's nothing out there that patients uh, can get a hold of where cancer patients, there is an opportunity. So you've got an option which gives you a chance and there is no chance for them. And the other moment, and Martin, what you've just said is quite exciting news. It is because that's like in cancer, you can, as Martin says, there's always something to measure. So you can see if things are happening. MND there hasn't there's 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 a there's a rating scale a functional rating scale which is okay but it's not great and then there's survival and that's it. Um, whereas in cancer you get all these blood markers and tumor size and all kinds of things going on, which every disease every tumor type has its own way of measuring. And I and think this I think is why this is so exciting culturally as well. We we've changed a lot as neurologists. You know, if you went to see an oncologist, a cancer doctor, that is, and they diagnose you with cancer, and then if they did anything other than say, right, this is the latest trial in this type of cancer and would you like to enroll, that you would expect that. And if they didn't say that, you would go and find another cancer doctor. That would be unacceptable to say, actually, there is no trial here at all. Now, there's reasons why that's been the case in neurological conditions, but we're starting to realise that actually we, we need to move into that sort of space and that's a big task we need probably more neurologists and, and different type of training. Can I ask so, a little question? Yeah. I'm sorry putting the spot again because I don't mean this because you're a good guy. Why has <laughs> it taken so long to do something like this, to do trials and everything come to the table? What is taking the time, really? I think the the recognition of these types of conditions and their complexity, they don't present in in ways that are often quite as simple as types of cancers do. And the immediate ability to get a scan and say, ah, there's the tumour or there's the blood test. What it is, is, as you know from your own diagnosis, is it's a, a specialist saying, there's no doubt this is, this is the condition, but it's because your reflexes do this when I tap them. And it's because you said that your, your hand got weaker and the, the, the feeling was normal. And I, I put it together as a clinical diagnosis. I don't have then any sort of handle on how active it is. And so to then say, we're going to try this drug 
it, it's just taken much, much longer um, with these sort of conditions. But why is it taking so long, Joel? The repurchasing of drugs or repurposing yeah. of drugs such a long time? Because I think HIV did it and got a good result and good cure. Yeah. Which was a number of years ago. So why is it? So HIV immediately had the viral load, uh, the blood test that you could do to show how active the virus was. The repurposing of drugs requires you to, to have a model that you screen them in and you say, yes, um, let's say in our cell we're going to have a, um, a particular substance A and the cell converts it to substance B um, and we think substance B is bad. And so we've got a way of reading those two things and now we give the drug and we see if it lowers the amount of substance B. And we can do that with panels of drugs and the ones that are already licensed we can take and say we could try those. That's what's been lacking is that cell model. And I think that's something that we've has come through through stem cell technology, the ability to create those models in the lab. And we are supporting two of our repurposing projects going on in Edinburgh and in Oxford. In kind of simple terms, let's be honest, if it's a disease of your blood or your other parts of your body, you can reproduce that in the, the lab. But when it's something within the brain, yeah. it's very difficult to get a biopsy of the brain. Absolutely. We can't take a biopsy without damaging the brain. Uh, there are ways that we, we might be able to improve that. We can take a sample of the liquid around the brain, the cerebrospinal fluid, um, and that actually does have some significant markers in, but it's not that easy to access. But yeah, we, we can't do that. And also modelling it um, in anything other than a human is very difficult because these are the human um, nervous system is just massively more complex than any other uh, animal on the planet. So modelling these has been very, very challenging. And I think that's why the ability to create human motor neurons in a dish has been so revolutionary. The big news in January was uh, the launch of MND Smart, which is the first multi-platform trial for MND. Uh, and it was launched to much fanfare. We are very proud to be supporting that. That and, and Sean, I'm going to ask you to talk a little bit about MND Smart because people will have seen it on the news. The, it's now open for people who are patients of MND to sign up and register and if possible, take part in this first trial. And it's the sure. first of, we hope, three. Uh, three. three so let, let, running. If you could give us a sure. word on MND Smart and perhaps Martin can then talk about the other trials that are hopefully in the pipeline. Sure. So MND Smart is what's called a platform trial. In cancer, there's a there's a there's a famous one in prostate cancer called Stampede, and the model is actually is based upon that. And actually, some of the people working on MND Smart from MRC were also working on Stampede. And the concept is in motor neuron disease. Uh, Martin just spoke about having a trial where you have fifty percent of the people on the active drug and fifty percent on placebo. And then you measure whatever you're going to measure. And then, then if that works, it works. If it doesn't, it doesn't. 50% of people on placebo is a big is a big ask in most neuron disease. And I think people don't want to be on the placebo for obvious reasons. And a platform trial allows you can have three or four different active arms and one arm on placebo. Or So the concept is to have far fewer patients on the placebo arm. So that's a, that's a one of the big advantage. The other advantage, of course, is you can, if the drug doesn't work, you can chuck one drug off and put in a new drug because the, 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 the infrastructure of the, of the platform exists and stays. So that's the scientific committees, it's the, the funding, it's the management of the whole trial, the ethical approvals and everything's already done. So you can put new drugs on and off when, whenever you see fit. So there's a big advantage from a time point of view, which is obviously so important in, in M&D. And that's, so that trial, that M&D Smart, as you said, is kicking off uh, in the UK in the next few months. So it's, it's live now, the website. You can go and have a look at M&D yeah. Smart and, and find out a little bit more about it. 
understand if you if you can sign up for it. Yeah. Uh, it's come out of the University of Edinburgh with the Ewan Macdonald Centre. We've supported it. MND Scotland have supported it. The Scottish government have supported it. Sure. It's and and will roll out into different centres around the country. Martin, I'm going to ask you about another trial which is very similar called Trical's. And if you have been looking into MND research anywhere in the, in the last few months, it's another name that would would flash up. Yeah, and, it, and it's the, the same principle. And I think we do need to have more centres doing it. This was something that has been led by uh, our very close European collaborations, which will definitely continue. Um, and uh, it's within the Netherlands in Utrecht. Uh, they're sort of piloting uh, the same sort of platform study, but lots more centres across uh, continental Europe. Uh, and this approach, I think, you know, will be driven um, by having more biomarkers underpinning it. And something we've all felt for a long time is that we must never have a trial now that we get to the end and um, there will be ones where we say, look, it didn't work. But we must never then say, we don't know why it didn't work and we have no lessons to learn in terms of biomarkers, things that were measured. Um, so all of that is is going to massively change uh, the way that we approach this. A question from a patient point of view, who may be listening to this, what one did they sign up to, Tricals or MD Smart? Well, I think whichever is is going to be nearest to to their centre. Um, M&D Smart is obviously starting off uh, very much pioneered in Scotland. And I think it's important to say to people there's not, you know, a particularly new drug. It's a way of doing studies. So I don't think people should feel that they're missing out. So, you know, in Oxford, we want to um, uh, develop that infrastructure. What we really need for that is uh, a lot of trials administration staff, actually. The, the job of the neurologist uh, is not um, that involved really in terms of day-to-day managing of a trial and it's that infrastructure that's the challenge to also get the NHS's research arm, NIHR, um, which is very geared towards trial uh, trials but get that much more focused on neurological studies. So all of that will, will start to happen. Uh, now which one it's particularly aligned to, um, you know, it's, uh, it doesn't really matter. And Tricars isn't, isn't live yet, it's still... Correct. It's, it's gone way, way past the planning stage. It's very imminent. Oh, yes, but it's, absolutely. It's, it yes. will soon launch. So yeah. there's a few, oh, in a minute. And when well, can we well, hear this? I mean, there's a few things to iron out. These are repurposed drugs for MD Smart. Trichals is a little different. And, and one of the advantages, of course, is not just three, dr- three drugs being used on the platform. There's two platforms. So there's six drugs within the UK. There's another trial that which we mentioned earlier called the from the Healy Foundation, out of Boston on the East Coast. And that's going to be another US-based platform trial. So all of a sudden, from no platform trials, we're going to have three platform trials and potentially nine or 10 drugs being tested. And the getting hold of the drugs is the, is the thing that's slowing things down a little bit in trials. It's a licensing thing. They've got to find where they're going to get the drug from, how they negotiate is it for free, and all that kind of stuff. And one of the, one of the companies involved, this just has to go through some more admin. But it's there, the infrastructure's there, um, there's commitment to fund from ourselves as well as um, other Sean, from a patient's point of view, people be can't, uh, can't understand why it takes so long getting a drug, could you you're just going to ask the drug coming, can we have your drug? Can you explain maybe why it takes so long to process a drug? As you mentioned before, we don't have a lot of time patients, so we would like it done a bit quicker. And I think that M&D Smart, for example, has taken 10 years to develop and come to the table, so, which is quite a long time. Yeah, I don't know why it would take 10 years. Um, 
especially if the drugs are, are repurposed generic drugs and used for other diseases, which indeed they are. So the cost wouldn't be an issue. If it's a licensed drug um, and it is in patent, there is a commercial responsibility from the pharmaceutical company. And also, um, they, don't, they might not necessarily want to see their drug cause harm. So that they might be withholding it uh, for, uh, to make sure that certain tests are done before unleashing it, if you like, on a larger M&D population. I'm not saying that is the reason, but those could be some of the reasons why, why things don't work quickly. Ten years is clearly unacceptable. I think that was getting our staff together as well. Was a big, I think all of those things. But what part of our role, and I know, and I know, you know, I it comes from you as well, Doddy, is to shake things up. And that's what we. That's what I think we're very good at is putting the feet to the fire and saying, "What's happening? Why aren't we doing things? Let's let's move quicker." So there are, I think, unacceptable delays. I agree, but I think things are now shifting, and we are a part of that for sure. And Martin, do you sense that? You know, you've been involved in in MND for 20 years. I mean, you've been immersed in the the research community. Where are you in terms of where you think the focus has been? Do you think a light is being shone more now than perhaps it has been because of the different, for a whole variety of factors, advances in stem cell technology, our understanding of the human genome, all the, the different things that have helped with the progressive medical research in the last 10, 15 years. But you know, where do you feel? Do you feel optimistic? Do you feel as though we're at the forefront? Do you feel as though we are now having a big light shone upon this? Unequivocally, I feel far more optimistic today than when I first started. Uh, things are accelerating in, in a way that is often difficult to see right now. But when you look back over that period of time, the technologies that we have, some of which have only been developed in the last five years or so, have completely revolutionized our ability to look both at what I always think it's a little bit like physics, actually. We have people looking at the very small things, um, the cells uh, in, in neurology, and we have pe- people looking at the big picture, so a bit like particle physics versus cosmology, people looking at the brain at, at a much larger scale. And it needs that because it's a whole system problem that's going wrong in MND. It is the individual cell, but it's how it's, it's plumbed in and, and, and how the, the entire system operates. So having imaging technology that can look at brain activity without needing to take a biopsy, growing motor neurons in a dish that you can apply uh, drugs to, those kind of tools were just not there uh, even 10 years ago to the level they are now. And all of that is accelerating. And, and I think in neurodegenerative diseases more widely, people are starting to see MND rather than the one that was going to be the hardest to crack. It may actually be because it's so very specific in the areas it affects the brain. It may be the one that actually leads the way. And we've seen a number of people come from the Alzheimer's field to work on MND which is often called ALS at the same time, um, because they feel that it's tractable. And, and 20 years ago, I didn't tell you people felt that ALS was the one that you know, would be the last to be solved. Doddy, what do, you, what do you see for the foundation going forward? The, the support is there. Um, we've got, obviously, the, the ear of these amazing researchers, the professors who come and talk to us regularly. What's July, today's conversation has been quite amazing. I see a lot optimism. It's been a great year. Now we see uh, trials on the table, which I think is just a start, but a very good start. So finally, M&D patients have got a chance because there's options available, which is very exciting. And we've got to continue to one of these chances actually grows to a success. And the foundation has to keep going until we found that 
that solution because that's what the ultimate goal is. We've got a problem, so let's find a solution. Until we find a solution, we'll keep going. So unlucky, you got to keep part of the foundation <laughs> for many years. <laughs> but mind you, to, for a patient point of view, again, is it UK? Because you're on many a committee, one of the top men in, in the world for MED finders a cure. Is it UK the leading light or is it America or who, who does a patient what country does a patient look to to try and find this ultimate cure? I think that uh, in most countries across wider Europe and in, in North America, uh, someone living with MND can find someone who is, is interested and knowledgeable about their condition. I think coming back to the UK, uh, we do have a really, really enviably good network and the MND Association do need to take credit for setting up the care centres and then also for saying... If you're going to get people to focus on this disease, doctors, you're going to have to find a way to take them out of routine NHS work to some extent, give them dedicated research time. So we do have good career structures and pathways in the UK. We do need them to be strengthened um, to encourage more people in. So I don't see researchers uh, coming to um, or leaving us to go to the US because the, 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 the science is much better. We have things to learn from other places, but I think UK science absolutely leads in neurodegeneration. I think it's something we should be really badging ourselves as having, you know, the world leading expertise. Uh, so it's a good, you know, it's a good place to, uh, uh, to, to live with this condition. I don't think people should be concerned that there's lots happening elsewhere. It's amazing to think we haven't talked about rugby at all <coughs> amid all the fury that's going on in the world of rugby and the exciting Six Nations that we're enjoying. Uh, but in subsequent episodes, we'll have some of Doddy's rugby mates in to talk about him. And, and we're also, you know, inevitably, as we come towards the end of the Six Nations, we're going to start talking about the Lions next year. But before that, we've got something else to start talking about, and that's going to be Doddy's birthday in oh, July. So we've got plenty. A humdinger. <laughs> we've plenty to be looking forward to. And if it's anything like yours, Jill, there'll be one big party. <laughs> yeah, but that was just my 40th. Imagine what my 50th will be like. We'll also invite uh, some more of our um, advisory panel to come and talk to us because I think Martin's contribution has been so, so valuable. Yep. And on that note, yeah. I wanted to just say a very special thank you to Martin because he's come up to Scotland to spend some time with us. We hauled him along to the National Portrait Gallery at one point. I've introduced him to the lights of Edinburgh and he, he I think you do like the tartan a little bit and he did say he wanted a, a dodgy weird tartan tie which are sold out you cannot buy one at the moment they are weaving new tweed as what we about speak. the new things you got in your feet Joel oh, I've got him a scarf oh wow because oh, it's so wow. cold thank you so much well, uh, I've got my beautiful you. tartan scarf because it is cold at this time of year. That's very kind, thank you. No, it's, it's so uh, nice to be invited to do this. I think all of us like to communicate. We feel passionate about this condition. And uh, so we are grateful that you are prepared to listen to us and we do want to help. And, uh, you know, thank you again. Thank you. If anybody would like any more information on MND Smart, you can visit the uh, website there. Uh, the Ewan MacDonald Centre and the University of Edinburgh have got resources as well. Um, MND Scotland, obviously, and MNDA can help with many of the questions that you might have after listening to us. Um, also, the our own 
Foundation website has details of how we come to our decisions on research investment, but a whole host of other information about what we're up to, not least some of the amazing people who are fundraising on our behalf um, and some of their stories, which are truly remarkable. Uh, So by all means, um, visit the website and you can hear a little bit more about that. I want to thank specifically Tim Groves, our producer. Font of all knowledge. I don't know why I keep saying that. Stop it, Jill. But great to have Tim with us, as always, uh, to our friends at Rugby Pass, who uh, provide us with a platform to share our Dodcasts. And of course, our very special friends at Aberdeen Standard Investments, who support us with making it possible to create and publish our Dodcasts. We look forward to welcoming you for episode four very soon. Thank you. Doddy Weir, there they are, driving on, keeping the ball alive. When he goes like that, he's like a mad giraffe, but he's got great skills.